as a young man, he sold some books and invested the proceeds in half shares in an ancient and temperamental Bugatti. One day, miles from anywhere, it blew a gasket and he needed to improvise a new washer and happened to have on the back seat some vellum leaves from one of those ancient Spanish manuscript choir books and he used to say he was ashamed to recall. He cut little discs out of the medieval vellum to, to fit over the gasket and the car worked beautifully thereafter. He used to add that this gave an opportunity for a little bit of one-upmanship because when people asked the age of the car, he could murmur nonchalantly that parts of it date back to the 15th century. <laughs> In fact, the cutting up of medieval manuscripts for the reuse of their vellum for other purposes has a long and distinguished bibliographical tradition, which probably goes back at least to the origin of the Codex. The reuse of excised leaves as palimpsests is even older than the use of vellum, for there are papyrus palimpsests among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the use of discarded fragments as strengthening inside book bindings has certainly been a European tradition for more than a thousand years. Vellum is a very strong material. It cuts easily, but is almost impossible to tear either within a monastic bindery where old imperfect manuscripts were lying about or when a revolution or the sacking of a library put many unwanted manuscripts onto the market. There must always have been a temptation to pull out vellum pages for salvage and reuse. The invention of printing and especially the English Reformation brought an even vaster number of discarded manuscripts into the hands of the scissor men. The 16th century was the great heyday for, for the use of cut-out leaves of manuscripts as sewing guards. Neil Kerr's book, Paste Downs in Oxford Bindings, records still extant relics of something over 2,000 manuscripts cut up in Oxford alone. Manuscript cuttings have served as admirable jam jar covers, wallpaper at New College in Oxford, for example, gun wadding, seal bags, drum skins, slipper linings, and lampshades. John Leyland, in a famous appeal to Thomas Cromwell in 1536, bewailed that cuttings from ancient manuscripts were being used by iconoclasts to clean their shoes and candlesticks, and for sale to the grocers and soap sellers, and some they sent overseas to ye bookbinders at times whole shippies full. I don't know how soap was generally packaged in the 16th century, but the fact of manuscript leaves being sold to soap manufacturers recurs in a letter from John Bale to Matthew Parker in 1560. These were among the earliest references to my theme of the cutting up of manuscripts for profit. Maybe they boiled the vellum down somehow for the making of tallow. The cutting up of manuscripts for the delight of the illuminations goes back at least to the 14th century. Some makers of manuscripts were evidently better at writing than at illustrating books. And a number of fascinating medieval manuscripts were constructed from cutting the illumination out of earlier manuscripts and then pasting them into the new books to supply ready-made initials and miniatures. It is an intriguing angle on the history of medieval book illumination which has hardly ever been investigated. And it seems to have been associated with nuns. The earliest that I've chanced upon, and I would welcome others, is the Alfonso Psalter in the British Library, which around 1315 
was decorated for Elizabeth de Boon by the pasting in of 18 tiny miniatures cut from a mid-13th century passion sequence, arranged now with six cuttings to the page, infilled with diaphod and heraldic grounds. Possibly Elizabeth de Boon did it herself, salvaging pictures from some favorite manuscript of her grandparents' time. An even older manuscript was cut up by members of an English Carthusian convent in the 15th century who excised and reapplied into a prayer book 49 miniatures from a 12th century psalter from Bury St. Edmunds. The Bridgetine nuns of Sion Abbey in England and the Dominican nuns of Poissy in France, among many other convents, used to cut out illuminated initials for reuse in books they were making or using in, in the early 16th century, including at Poissy miniatures from, from a fine 13th century Bible and borders from around 1400. By the 16th century, the practice evidently ran parallel with that of pasting woodcuts into favorite devotional books, except that manuscript cuttings were more upmarket. Two extreme examples of 15th century manuscript cuttings being used to add luster to books which hardly deserved further ennoblement are the supreme 8th century Vespasian Psalter, which has on its flyleaf a cutting from a border with the arms of the Duke of Burgundy, and the outstanding Sherban Missal, which has an added border cut from a manuscript illuminated in Naples for Alfonso of Aragon. I wish I knew when these borders were added, but presumably the first at least was there before the Psalter was acquired by Robert Cotton in 1599. It is a truism, first expressed by Sidney Cockerell, that you expect all medieval manuscripts to be imperfect. Certainly, very many illuminated manuscripts show at least some losses of what must have been decorated pages or have holes from the cutting out of initials and borders. The problem, of course, is guessing when the illumination was excised. There are manuscripts in Cambridge and Oxford with initials apparently cut out before 1604 and 1616, respectively. Manuscripts in relatively neglected English cathedral or family libraries often have had initials roughly cut out with the point of a knife, leaving gashes on the page below. And nearly 90 of the medieval manuscripts in the library of Balliol College in Oxford, for example, have at least some part of their illumination cut out the Dean of Durham's children are said to have amused themselves on wet afternoons, carelessly cutting initials from books in the chapter library before the invention of stamp collecting. <laughs> the lack of survival of detached initials themselves from manuscripts once in 17th century college or ecclesiastical libraries would suggest that the cuttings were not preserved after being extracted and that their removal was simply an idle activity rather than one with any real purpose. I know of no evidence that the cutting out of illuminated initials had any puritanical virtue, like the smashing of stained glass windows under Oliver Cromwell, or the knocking of heads off ecclesiastical sculpture, but the fact that the learned books were preserved while their frivolous initials were removed is certainly consistent with Puritan ethics. By the late 17th century, we find traces of antiquarian interest in cutting out fragments as relics of ancient handwriting. Dean Montague of Durham in 1700 gave permission to Samuel Pepys to cut out fragments from two pre-conquest gospel books in the cathedral, 
for the diarist's calligraphic collection, although the chapter later regretted this and wrote to Pepys unsuccessfully to ask for them back. Humphrey Wanley requested permission from the curators of the Bodleian in about 1698 to cut out fly leaves for his own collection of ancient scripts. John Bagford, who died in 1716, apparently cut specimen leaves from the windmill Psalter and from the hours of Henry VII, evidently as historical relics, and he gave or sold one of the latter to Pepys. In some smaller libraries, the practice of giving away souvenirs from richly illustrated manuscripts continued almost into our own time. The most famous example is the breathtakingly important 12th century Winchester Bible, still in Winchester Cathedral, and with gaping holes in at least six pages from where initials have been cut out and presented as gifts to distinguished visitors to the cathedral. At least one whole page was probably cut out from the Winchester, ba Winchester Bible in 1820, and initials may have been removed even more recently. One was found in Yorkshire and returned in 1948. The late Walter Oakeshott showed me a copy of an astonishing letter written to the canon librarian in August 1927, no less, thanking with utmost pleasure and gratitude, I'm quoting, for the hour or more spent looking at the noble miniatures in the Winchester Vulgate. P.S. That initial S now ranks as the cornerstone of my possessions. But, the writer continues intriguingly and quaintly, mum mum as to this. In other words, hush. Could this really have been one cut out as recently as 1927? I find it hard to believe, but if any of you have it at home, or, or know where it is, it's probably worth a million dollars. But at the time, and we're probably talking mostly about the 17th to very early 19th century, such initials were evidently cut out for no possible commercial purpose, and indeed the opposite as trinkets of no value except as decoration. In the 1820s, Philip Hanrot's children and their cousin Esther Corey occupied their idle afternoons cutting out illuminated initials from their father's Carmelite missal of circa 1400 and rearranging these in scrapbooks to spell out their names and other messages in medieval letters. Hanrot himself explained that his missal was already imperfect and in any case it had cost him only seven guineas and presumably his children had their seven guineas worth of fun before the corpus of the mutilated missal was discarded as it was. Hanrot was, by his time, a very old-fashioned collector, and he would have been astonished to learn that in his posthumous sale of 1833, even the mutilated cuttings of the Carmelite Missal sold for £28, 10 shillings, four times what he'd paid for the uncut volume, and that in 1874, they were resold to the British Museum for £210, and are now, even in their pathetic, mutilated state, regarded as relics of one of the greatest of all London illustrated manuscripts of the late 14th century. The active collecting of miniatures as specimens of medieval painting evidently begins with the Gothic revival at the end of the 18th century. In 1771, Horace Walpole's correspondent, Sir John Fenn, for example, bought nine of the 108 miniatures from the Morgan Gower manuscript cut out for him specially by Thomas Worth, 
a chemist from this in Norfolk. Early collectors of Gothic taste rather liked the ecclesiastical origin of illuminated miniatures, emphasizing or even exaggerating romantic cathedral or papal provenances. Luigi Cellotti, who brought many cuttings to England to sell, and who may or may not have been an abate, as he claimed, called his wares illuminations from monastic choir books. And I have the itemized bill for assembling the Burkhardt Wilt album of cuttings in 1796, describing them as alter cluster Zeichnungen miniaturen, old monastic miniature pictures. The hundreds of miniatures in that album were trimmed to their edges and mounted often in patterns on the pages, either in the shape of church monstrances or in rows like a gallery of tiny panel paintings. Daniel Burkhardt Wilt bought the ready-made collection in Paris for a total of 443 livres and 14 centimes from Peter Berman, minor Swiss artist and picture dealer, who has an even more famous place in our story as the man who doubtless cut up the hours of Etienne Chevalier the masterpiece of Jean Fouquet. This supreme book of ours, illuminated around 1455, entered the possession of Peter Biermann at the French Revolution, and all its miniatures were cut out and trimmed to shape, and most were then mounted onto panels of wood and framed, with their edges masked and their panels of text where they occur were painted out or patched over. As such, they ceased to resemble pieces of a manuscript but were transformed into tiny but exquisite devotional panel paintings. Sometime in or soon after 1803, Berman sold 40 of them to the Frankfurt picture collector Georg Brentano for 5,000 gold francs. And in the event, Brentano's son resold them later in the century to the Duke d'Aumau for 250,000 francs. These are prices that would tempt any dealer to cut up a manuscript even one who felt the need to mask the fact that he had done so. Perhaps we should just pause and take stock of the story so far. The cutting out of illumination from manuscripts was a medieval practice by scribes and book owners who reused pictures to ornament other books. The practice of excising initials as curiosities and souvenirs degenerated into a kind of proto-philately in the 17th or 18th century for children or for bored visitors with pen knives in dusty institutional libraries. Relatively suddenly, around 1800, art collectors rediscovered the Gothic. The French Revolution simultaneously put vast numbers of medieval illuminated manuscripts into commerce. Many hundreds of manuscripts were suddenly available to be cut up into thousands of medieval paintings. This is the period and the theme covered by Mundy in his admirable book of 1972, Connoisseurs and Medieval Miniatures, and I won't repeat his anecdotes at length, except to make two points relevant to our theme. The first is that illuminations were cut out exactly to shape, trimming away all traces of text and of manuscript context to allow the eye to concentrate entirely on the pictorial art. The second point, and this is a theme which will now recur with increasing persistence throughout this paper, is that no one admitted to doing the cutting, and everyone passed the blame back down the line to some always unnamed previous owner. 
The exact trimming to the edges of excised miniatures is very characteristic of collections formed in the first half of the 19th century. Most of the cuttings in the Wallace collection in London are not only cut to shape, but even the traces of vellum edging are painted over in black. Illuminations, like watercolours or drawings before the mid-19th century, were not framed, but usually collected into portfolios. Great albums of medieval miniatures were formed with miniatures trimmed and pasted down, including, among many, the Rogers and Rothschild albums, now in the British Library, and the Boone, Goldschmidt and Wheel albums in the V&A, and those of Northwick, Holford, Crawford of Lakelands, Lomax, Deniston, and others, all eventually dispersed in the 20th century. The miniatures they chose tended to be Italian for preference, for Italian art from Giotto to Raphael was held in the highest regard, or French miniatures of the early Renaissance. To us now, it may seem distressing to contemplate a once glorious page mutilated down to no more than its central compartment, but not so in the 19th century. Dibden, in 1817, speaking of choir books, wrote, my friend Mr. Otley absolutely revels in the possession of the most splendid ancient fragments of books of this description and William Young Otley was proud to exhibit to Dr. Wagen portfolios of a thousand cuttings. Otley must surely have cut out miniatures himself, for his sale in 1838 includes 20 miniatures, which Madden recognized as excised from Otley's own hours of Yoland of Soissons. Francis Daus, who died in 1834, had many albums of cuttings, of which some, at least, came from out of his own manuscripts and the Bodleian staff in Jonathan Alexander's time exercised much ingenuity trying to replace them into their voided contexts. Regency collectors would not have seen this as mutilation at all. On the contrary, they were paying tribute to medieval painting, removing it from an unwieldy book, exalting it to a level with panel painting and adoring it as pure art. One could compare those early Egyptologists proudly removing artefacts from neglect in the earth and bringing them back to mount on pedestals for the admiration of all. They were the connoisseurs, singling out beauty where it had hitherto gone unnoticed. Otley wrote in the preface to the Cholotti catalogue in 1825 that in the past, treasures of this kind preserved in the pontifical sacristy were at no time easy of access. But now, salvaged and brought to London, they merit I regard as the monuments of a lost art, his italics. Nevertheless, we sense a certain feeling of discomfort among the collectors that these treasures were mutilations from books. Gibden in 1817 observes that Otley's cuttings were recently excised from manuscripts, but he adds archly, as no names are here mentioned, this general observation will be perfectly stingless. Chilotti laid the blame quite safely on Napoleon's troops and emphasized that he himself had subsequently collected the cuttings. So did Denison, asserting that the, the manuscripts were looted by the French and fell into the hands of some Boers who proceeded to cut up the broad parchment leaves and that he had been able to save the miniatures in Lucca in 1838. The damage having been done, wrote Colonel Strange in his catalogue of the 19th century collection at the V&A, it's now possible only to preserve 
carefully such relics as may be found. Collectors who cut up manuscripts were, Rowan Watson tells me, first referred to as vandals by H.M. Lucien in 1860. Now enter John Ruskin, the bait noir of art history, an unjustified hero of manuscript breakers, ever provocative, deliberately controversial. Cut up missile in evening, hard work, Ruskin famously wrote in his diary in 1854. And later, there are literally thousands of manuscripts in the libraries of England of which a few leaves dispersed among parish schools would do more to educate the children of the poor than all the catechisms that ever tortured them. Don't take him too seriously. There was nothing Ruskin enjoyed more than stirring the establishment. Of almost a hundred illuminated manuscripts owned personally by Ruskin, he removed or gave away sample leaves, in fact, of only four, two of which had already been partially dismembered by Jarman. He pasted up one collage of miniatures, now in the Ruskin galleries at Bembridge, but there seems to be no evidence that Ruskin himself had cut out the pictures. On the contrary, and this is important, Ruskin's depredations of manuscripts were the separation of whole leaves or bifolia and not the cutting out of pieces of pages. It shows a certain cavalier attitude to books, but he was not a mutilator of illumination. Sidney Cockrell, Ruskin's disciple and long-lived propagandist, also gave away leaves and bifolia as upmarket dinner presents, including 17 leaves which he detached from what he believed to be Petrarch's copy of Peter Lombard. And subsequently, in Cockerell's circle, responsible collectors such as H.R. Kresig and Chester Beatty could justify the giving away or exchanging of detached leaves from manuscripts they had acquired intact. In that sense, Ruskin's double-edged legacy is still with us, and countless times have I heard dealers invoking Ruskin as their justification for breaking manuscripts. By this point in my lecture, Bill Stoneman in our audience will have won a dollar. For having read the advertised title of my paper, he laid a bet with his students that I would be talking about Ruskin. But Ruskin was not a snipper out of miniatures, and his admiration was for the whole page, including scripts and borders. By about 1900, we begin to find a new type of collector, interested not just in illumination, but in whole leaves. Robert Forer of Strasbourg is a good example among many. He published two private catalogues of his collection in 1901 and 1907. The first had 50 plates, of which 23, nearly half, were of whole leaves removed intact from manuscripts, and 27 were of trimmed cuttings. The second catalogue, six years later, had 62 plates, of which 38, now almost two-thirds, were of whole leaves removed intact from manuscripts. Six of them are what we would now call text leaves, pages without significant illumination. This marks the crucial turning point in our story. Early 19th century collectors were interested only in isolated illuminations. Miniatures were cut out and the vandalized text pages frankly destroyed. But by the first decade of the 20th century, and not much earlier, 
all parts of a dismembered manuscript became collectible. When this happened, as you would expect, the antiquarian book trade obligingly changed gear. Booksellers began breaking up manuscripts to sell leaf by leaf. Watch how quickly this happened. Mags Brothers, for example, still distinguished dealers in London, offered in 1920 a bound Renaissance book of hours with 15 miniatures and 64 text leaves, priced at 275 pounds. Evidently, it didn't sell. Mags, therefore, simply broke it up. And in 1923, they offered the miniatures, mostly at 21 pounds each, with the best up to 31 pounds, 10 shillings, and the text leaves at up to 10 and sixpence each. Assuming they sold every one, the new total would now come to 361 pounds, as distinct from 100 pounds less, at which the complete volume was unsaleable. We find, too, the first commercially motivated leaf books, in which a volume is broken for inclusion in a printed edition of numbered copies, limited to the number of leaves available, of which one of the earliest, and I do know it's not a manuscript, is the Gutenberg leaf book, a noble fragment issued by Gabriel Wells in 1921. Between the wars, specimens of medieval pages became relatively commonplace for collectors. I've been told how Myers and Company of New Bond Street, throughout much of the 1920s and 30s, used always to have in their window leaves from a 14th century English lectern Bible at one pound one shilling a leaf. Folio 89 from that very manuscript now belongs to the rare book library here at the University of Virginia. Many dealers, including Mags, began to specialize in supplying leaves. I have a soft spot for Eric von Schierling of Leiden, who issued obsessively fascinating catalogues, almost exclusively of manuscript text leaves between 1927 and 1956, a total of some 2,600 items. His market was mostly in America, to judge from his prices in dollars. Many of the leaves offered by von Schierling were former binding fragments and archaeological finds, such as the piece of St. John in Greek Unseals, which he sold for $37 in 1949, of which we resold at Sotheby's in 1990 for £42,000. But others were supplied from books, which he clearly broke up himself such as a splendid Isidore of Seville, which he dismembered in 1933. One of his principal customers was Otto F. Eggie of Cleveland, Ohio. I seriously considered giving this entire lecture about Otto Eggie. He's one of the most remarkable and fascinating of all American book collectors. Otto Eggie was a passionate bibliophile and book historian he taught at the Library School at Western Reserve and at the Cleveland Institute of Art for 30 years, seven of them as dean. He was a good scholar and an enthusiastic lover of the Middle Ages, and he probably destroyed more medieval manuscripts than any single person since Genghis Khan. And he even wrote an article about it called I Am a Biblioclast, published in 1938. Otto Egge is the most endearing of arch-villains. His name is spelled E-G-E, -E. it means Oaks in Danish, though he was of German descent, and he was born in Reading, Pennsylvania in 1888. He studied at the Philadelphia School of Industrial Arts, and in 1920 moved to Cleveland Heights. 
he was a man of gentle manners and wire glasses. He began acquiring medieval manuscripts in 1911, and by the time of de Ricci's census in 1937, he owned some 50 more or less complete manuscripts, and already more than 400 single leaves. He acquired some on visits to Europe, especially in Spain, where he had much success, but also by post from Mags, Frigaskis, von Schierling, and others. Sometime in the 1920s, Otto Egge first began cutting up his own manuscripts to create single leaves, which he then sold as original examples of medieval script. In a tribute published after Egge's death in 1951, Professor Foster of Western Reserve said, this idea of specimen pages was wholly Mr. Egge's, and I think it a brilliant one. Otto Egge must have sold them in thousands in pale yellow paper folders ruled in red ink, priced at a dollar a leaf upwards. And a quick sample in de Ricci's census and supplement reveals a great arc of single leaf collections from Boston to Chicago and up to Toronto, centered on Cleveland, for this was Eggie's selling patch. He dispersed many Bibles from the early 12th century onwards, breviaries, missals, including one in Beneventan script, another from Beauvais Cathedral, from the Broloman sale of 1926. Books of ours, including one copied by San Vito, though Eggy thought it was French. Manuscripts of Cicero, Terence, Valerius Maximus, St. Gregory, Petrus Riga, Aquinas, and so on. Major texts, leaf by leaf. The destruction is almost too horrifying to contemplate. Eggy's evangelism and conviction of righteousness probably brought fascination and delight to many hundreds of ordinary Americans who would never otherwise have set eyes on a medieval manuscript. His commentaries drew attention to the thrill of confronting an original manuscript face to face. Around 1944, Otto Egge began publishing boxed portfolios, of which he issued at least four, with names such as Medieval Manuscripts, 50 Original Leaves from Western Europe each with cut-out leaves in folders with oblong printed explanatory notes. And he marketed these himself, and especially through the bookseller Philip Dushness of New York. When Otto Egge died in 1951, he had over 1,500 leaves already mounted and prepared for dispersal, valued for probate at $10,000. Compare his next most valuable asset, his 1950 Pontiac, valued at $1,600. By the end of his life, Egge had virtually gone into partnership with Dushness, buying, for example, a 12th century Cistercian missile at Park Burnett in 1948, which was immediately cut up for sale. Dushness was frankly commercial. The leaves listed in this catalogue are all original and authentic. They are desirable for the collector and student's own use, and are particularly desirable for framing. And a couple of catalogues later, there's hardly a bookman anywhere who would not appreciate several of these leaves for his own library or the printer for his office. Prices are net and include carriage charges anywhere in the United States. Satisfaction is guaranteed. One of the most recent of American dealers who at one time had a very considerable line in supplying leaves is my friend Bruce Farini of Akron, Ohio, very much in the Otto Egge territory. His first catalogue was first issued in 1987 and included separate leaves, often with multiple choices, from at least 20 manuscripts, which 
within recent memory has been complete or bound books. And nor was that catalogue coy about the origin of the leaves, for it generally gives full-sale references to the unbroken volumes. Bruce was then in partnership with a medical doctor from Chicago, who was fascinated by the whole intellectual concept of breaking books. It's like loaves and fishes which multiply indefinitely. You buy a manuscript for $1,000, for example. You break it in, in two, and each half is worth $900. You tear it in half again, and each quarter is worth $800. You split it again, and each eighth is worth $750, and so on. You can pursue this Aristotelian abstraction to absurdity. For no fragment is worth nothing. And the coincidental profits will be infinite and can never fail. For example, an English monastic Bible was sold by the General Theological Seminary at Christie's, New York, in October 1980 and realized $12,000. The catalogue, issued by Bruce Farini and his then partners, included separate leaves from this volume and indeed supplied the full reference to the Christie's auction. Historiated initials from the manuscript were offered at $1,750 each. Illuminated initials at $800 each. And text pages at $350 each. And as it happens, I bought one myself. Simply multiplied out, the sale total comes to $190,800 against an original investment of $12,000. Bruce tells me, and I believe him entirely, that now, a decade later, he would never, ever break up a manuscript. And indeed, during the recent press reports about leaves cut from a manuscript from the Vatican, he was quoted as saying, you don't do that with something you love. In England, the commercial cutting of manuscripts flourished, especially in the 1960s. Dealers as reputable as Mags, Alan Thomas, Quaridge, and Francis Edwards all had their share. And the civilized firm of Folio Fine Art, an offshoot of the Folio Society, made a speciality of breaking and they issued catalogues, which I used to receive avidly in my teens, from 1960 until 1971. And their manuscript leaves were described as mounted, ready for framing. The first manuscript in their first catalogue comprised leaves from a Bourges book of ours that they'd bought at Sotheby's three months earlier for £125. At £2.10 shillings a text leaf and £25 a miniature, their return was £414 a small enough sum in today's terms, but over 300% on the outlay. Over the years, items that entered the possession of Folio Fine Art as bound books and re-emerged as framed leaves included a 12th century Greek Hermologian, probably from Rhodes, a 13th century Greek Menaean palimpsest from the Phillips collection, a 13th century Bible from Villeneuve-les-Avignons, one of the earliest known copies of the interpretation of Hebrew names, possibly from Lantony Priory, the East Anglian Hungerford Hours of about 1330, a Parisian Bible from the Chester Beatty collection, and a 14th century Cologne Breviary and an early 13th century Seville Psalter, both still complete in 1967. Each manuscript leaf had a penciled stock number, and by May 1970, these had reached 4,400. We must now come back to the vexing ethical question which had troubled the chapter of Darrow in 1700, Dibden in 1817, and Lucian in 1860. 
the breaking of medieval manuscripts still flourishes, and no one admits to doing it. A manuscript intact, as recently as the 13th century English Bible, which went through Sotheby's in June 1993, is now scattered around the world in 402 single leaves. Philip Parages prefixes every catalogue with the statement, the manuscript leaves we offer for sale are acquired individually, and then he breaks into capitals, we do not ever take apart complete books in order to sell individual leaves. Cut up by some damn fool, said Alan Thomas, in several of his catalogue descriptions of fragments. I am firmly opposed to breaking out books, wrote H.P. Krauss in his autobiography, recounting how Sotheby's cut up a manuscript on his behalf, bringing Krauss a profit of more than 600%. It's always the owner before who has cut up a manuscript, or the customer afterwards, or a former member of staff. But, make no mistake, the cutting up of manuscripts still happens. Often the books destroyed are those that we can least afford to lose. Manuscripts broken into leaves in recent years include the breviary of Borso d'Este, the St. Albans Abbey Bible, the Missal of Shear Church, once at Helmingham Hall, the Psalter from Icon Church, still in its 14th century English binding a decade ago, a Bible perhaps from Glastonbury Abbey, the only signed manuscript by Ludovica de Garcis of Cremona, also in its original binding, the Houghton Shiname, an 11th century Italian homiliary, a Psalter from Tynmouth Priory, Lord Butte's Soissons Book of Hours, and Lord Astor's Burgundian Book of Hours, both with fine miniatures, a 12th century St. Gregory from Santa Maria de Columba, a 13th century Peter Lombard from Santa Maria de Angelis in Milan, a Psalter from Reims Cathedral, the Hoof Hornby Cockerell Hathaway Bible of circa 1220, one of only two dated books of ours from the Boussico workshop, a book of ours by the scribe Johannes de Bermelia, attributed, I hope wrongly, to the Master of Mary of Burgundy, and probably hundreds of others, especially choir books, Bibles, and books of ours. Let there be no doubt. The deliberate destruction of any unique work of art can only be regarded as unforgivable vandalism. I hope this theme has been unambiguous throughout this paper. The breaking up of a medieval manuscript, whether for enjoyment or profit, is and always will be, at least for bibliographers, entirely indefensible and infinitely regrettable. I want to make my private position on this absolutely clear because, to conclude, I want to try to argue in its favour. If, like a barrister employed to defend the patently indefensible, one had to construct a case in favour of breaking up medieval manuscripts, it might run something as follows. One, many medieval manuscripts are now of very slight textual value. A 13th century Bible or a 15th century choir book will never be of significance in establishing the original text. And their importance lies exclusively in their antiquarian interest. The script, the layout, the ink, the vellum, the minor decoration, the pin prickings and so forth can be viewed in one leaf as well as they can in a hundred. Two, single leaves are less expensive than complete books. And they are the only handmade medieval artifacts which many collectors and museums can reasonably expect to own. 
And if we are to accept that seeing and handling medieval manuscripts has any value at all, then the wide distribution of fragments brings paleography to the widest possible range of people. I myself began to be fascinated by manuscripts at the age of 13 by seeing and even borrowing leaves and fragments owned by our local public library. If these had been complete books, the library would never have afforded to buy them in the first place, and a schoolboy would never have been allowed access to the originals. Three, there is the simple question of commerce. I'm aware that this is the weakest point in this hypothetical argument, but we cannot disregard the world of business, nor to say that selling at a profit is necessarily a moral evil. Slightly imperfect books are difficult to market at a high price, and I have much experience of this, but single leaves sell extremely well. And until libraries and museums will pay more readily for an imperfect book than for the sum of its leaves, then there will be commercial reasons favoring both sides of the transaction. Four, single leaves are easy to display. A complete volume is notoriously complicated to exhibit or to photograph, for it's difficult to hold open, and at best, only two pages can be seen at once. Single leaves are the exhibitor's and publisher's dream. Some of the greatest medieval manuscripts in the world, this may surprise you, have been permanently dismembered into single leaves for that very reason, including the Codex Vaticanus, the Vatican Virgil, the Berlin Dante with miniatures by Botticelli, the Schwarzgebetbuch in Vienna, and the Rothschild Miscellany in Jerusalem. Five. Leaves kept flat are more easily conserved than, than pages in bound manuscripts, which must be touched and folded every time a book is opened. The Très for example, is not on view at Chantilly because it cannot be fully opened without some risk of damage. But the framed leaves from the hours of Etienne Chevalier in the same museum are on permanent view and may be safely seen and studied and admired by thousands of people every year. Six. If we take the really long-term cosmic view of the world, ultimately, and I hope I'm talking about countless thousands of years hence, all manuscripts will be destroyed. Disasters do happen and works of art suffer. In the 20th century, the libraries of Turin, Metz, Louvain, Chartres, for example, have been destroyed by fire or war, and the Gulbenkian mostly by flooding. In the case of the Turin fire of 1904, we still have at least part of the Savoy hours and of the great Turin Milan hours owned by the Duke de Berry and completed by Jan van Eyck, because leaves had been cut out and were in Portsmouth and Milan at the time. All the known miniatures by the master of the Murano Gradual to take another example, were cut out of one book from an island in the Venetian lagoon. There is a greater chance that the work of this artist will survive for our descendants in the 30th century, for example, divided, as the miniatures now are, among four continents and a dozen museums, than in one place where one accident destroys a complete herb in a single stroke. Seven. In the Middle Ages, Manuscripts were assembled from different components and, like houses today, were added to and reassembled, sold, altered and reconstructed from other elements, bound and disbound, with sections frequently added or removed without any sense of that single moment completeness which is unique to printed books. 
to adapt the constituent parts of a manuscript to suit the circumstances of its ownership may not be right, but it is a tradition as old as the history of medieval books. Eight. It is wrong that any old artifact should be dismembered, but there comes a point when one must ask where the moment of dispersal begins. A single bifolium or miniature is an entity in itself, actually painted like that. A well-preserved bifolium is no more or no less an intact work of art than a manuscript which has lost its original binding and chemise wrapping. A bound-up book was itself once part of the medieval library or treasury, and that should have been kept intact too. And the library, in turn, was part of a whole monastery. And if we had the entire fittings and furniture of St. Albans, for example, our knowledge of the Middle Ages would be much greater. The manuscript, however, probably came there from a medieval stationer. And, taking the argument to absurdity, we could exist that the stationer should never have sold the book in the first place. Because this, too, was dispersing, for commercial gain, the work of one scribe or artist. Let us not be too rigid. Our ancestors have been enjoying and cutting up medieval manuscripts for hundreds of years. And it still happens and we should be careful not to encourage it. But I think there is no doubt that historically the partial dispersal of some manuscript leaves has served some function, and it wasn't all Ruskin's fault. Thank you. <laughs>